Well, good morning once again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to Daniel chapter 8. As we continue on in the vision, dream section of the book of Daniel, we're going to get another more focused perspective on one of the facets of the diamond that we have already seen in Daniel this morning, which will then allow us to zoom back out to gain a better perspective of how God has orchestrated history and therefore how our lives should be informed by it. It, it will be a bit of a heavy lift this morning, regrettably not the heaviest to come. Uh, things do not get easier uh, in the book of Daniel, but I will say uh, if you can stay with me through this particular sermon between what we uh, heard last week and this week, I think we will have a very solid structure and framework with which to work through the rest of the book without resorting to wild allegories or groundless speculations, um, but have a principled interpretation of this uh, challenging book. And so um, it is apparently the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And Daniel tells us of another dream that he had, explicitly recalling the first one, he says, it was the third year, the reign of King Belshazzar, uh, in, the, in the third year, excuse me, appeared a vision to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, which was in chapter 7. And uh, we read that he sees in the vision that he, he, is in the, uh, that he is in Susa, the citadel. That doesn't mean that he is actually there. That means in the vision, like in a dream, you end up somewhere. That's what he's saying. He's in the capital of Persia, interestingly. Remember, Belshazzar, Babylonian regime, his vision, he finds himself in Susa, which is about 220 miles east of Babylon, capital of the Persian Empire, which has not conquered Babylon yet. So, that's the context of the vision. And then, Daniel depicts for us what we heard Ava read so well, we hear, of, we hear of a vision about a ram. And this ram has two horns. Both are high, but one is actually higher than the other. Certainly a goofy looking ram, to be sure. Um, on the bank of the Uli Canal there, and this ram charges every direction but eastward. When I come back to that, it charges every direction except eastward. And no beast could stand before it. No one could rescue from the domination of this ram. The two-horned ram did as he wanted to, and he became great. That's what it says. Pretty serious depiction. But then we continue on, and, and, and Daniel tells us that as he was kind of taking it all in, considering the ram, that a goat, a male goat, bursts onto the scene from the west. That's what he says. He says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So this goat had really covered some serious ground before it gets there to Susa. That's where he is in the vision. That's where this ram is. The goat is pictured as going so fast it doesn't even touch the ground, a gl gliding, flying kind of goat 
that is enormously powerful with this big, singularly conspicuous horn in between its um, eyes or on its, uh, uh, there on its head. And then in verse 6, we kind of get the barnyard version of Agent Smith versus Neo here. These two powerful beasts encounter each other. It's like, what is going to happen when the ram meets the goat? Okay, what is going to happen? Well, here's what happens. It says he, he came to the ram with the two horns. That is to say the goat. He came to the, the ram who couldn't be stopped, uh, which I had seen standing on the bank of canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. Man, in um, apocalyptic theological terms, this is called getting owned. Okay? That's what happens. That's what the ram Excuse me, that is what the goat does to this ram that seemed, uh, hey, invincible. It seemed like it could do anything, but there's, there's, the, there, there's the goat that comes in and, and really puts it on him. That's what we read. And the goat, it says, becomes not just great, but exceedingly great. Then something unexpected happens, you might say. The goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong... The great horn was broken. That one pivotal horn that presumably was used to attack the ram as it charged. And it was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So, big horn broken, four horns kind of pointing in each direction come up out of where the big horn was. You following with me? This is the... I couldn't find a picture that depicted all this. It just looks silly. So I'm just trying to describe it. Okay? And then it's about to get one step stranger. So you've got the big horn gets broken. Four little hor- uh, four horns excuse me, pop up out of that. And then out of one of the four that replaced the one, a little horn emerges. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Toward the glorious land. A clear break from simply telling us cardinal directions. Maybe there's something there. I tend to think there is. We'll have to see. And listen to how great this little horn becomes. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it together. The regular burnt offering, because of transgression or because of the act of rebellion, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. There's going to be a host of folks given over to this particular horn. The burnt offering is going to be removed because of transgression. The horn will throw down truth as it prospers. And it's about this point in the vision where everyone, apparently even people in the vision itself, start asking some questions. 
Daniel overhears two of the holy ones in the vision talking with one another. And one of them says to the other in verse 13, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? This last piece that Daniel has just seen. How long is this part? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled under foot. The fruit of this little horn and how great it's become. How, how long? How long? Verse 14 says, and he said to, and there's a textual variant here. It's not clear whether it's to him, the, the, the holy one who asked the question, or turn to Daniel. It doesn't, I'm not sure it matters. But he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And now we find ourselves in the unenviable position of asking, what on earth does all of that mean? And thankfully, we are going to get an interpretation. And despite having to interpret the interpretation, you're not going to feel as lost as you otherwise would be by the time we're done. So again, while the vision, properly speaking, ends just like in chapter 7, it doesn't totally end because there is, again, an embedded interpreter. There is an embedded interpreter. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. But here's the thing. So the, the man, uh, someone stands before him, has the appearance of a man. We're going to learn very quickly, though, that it is not a man. In the appearance of a man, but it's actually... It's not a man. Daniel says that he hears the voice of a man between the banks, presumably a voice like over the water between the banks of the canal. And the voice calls out a familiar name. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. Gabriel, a name that means God is my strength, a powerful angel that appears later on in the biblical narrative. It's called upon by this voice to help Daniel understand the vision. And perhaps not surprisingly, when he approaches Daniel, Daniel freaks out. Because when people are approached by angels in the Bible, at least in their, they, they freak out. That's just the pattern. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face, Daniel says. Here's what Gabriel says. He said, understand, O man, that the vision is for the time of the end. The time of the end. Hold that thought, because a lot hinges on what exactly that means. The time of the end. And already, after being face first on the ground, Gabriel speaks, and then it's like the movie Inception. Like he falls asleep within the, He's got a vision, and then he falls asleep within it. I'm not sure how it's supposed to work, but that's what happens. 
I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So in the vision, he freaks out because Gabriel's approached him. He's face down. And as Gabriel speaks to him, he falls asleep. In his kind of prostrated state. But it wasn't nap time. And so Gabriel says, Stand up. Touch me. Made me stand. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Time of the end. Latter end of the indignation. Appointed time of the end. We have to answer the question, the end of what? Exactly. The end of what? What end are we talking about? Our New Testament ears automatically assume something like, it's the end of the world, of course. The end of the world. Uh, But it would be a big mistake to just automatically conclude that wherever we read something about the end, that we're talking about the end of the world. We heard just in the psalm that... that, uh, was read that God will put an end to those who are unfaithful. In fact, in the, uh, the Daniel chapter 7 concludes with Daniel using the word end to just say, this is the end of the matter. This is the end of the matter. What matter? The matter that he just talked about. The matter that he just talked about. And I would suggest that given what immediately precedes it, the end is much more likely related to how, the how long question of verse 13. How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long? I'm suggested that is better understood in light of that context. Further, the phrase, the latter end of the indignation, with only one exception in the 20 uses in the Old Testament, indignation is something that God has. It is a righteous anger. And so I think this is the most helpful phrase here. At the latter time of God's righteous anger coming to an end or coming to its fullness... Is it God's righteous anger against His people for their disobedience or His righteous anger against those who are persecuting and oppressing His people? You can make a case for both. I think the context favors the second strongly. And we're going to see that as we move through. Okay, If you think that's a little bit of a reach, I think you're going to see it confirmed as we move through. So in response to the question, how long will the removal of the burnt offering and the transgression and, and making desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot. How long will it continue? Daniel is telling him when it will end, and when the sanctuary will be restored. That's what he's telling him. When the little horn's dominion will end, and the sanctuary will be restored. That is the end. Verses 20 and 21, mercifully, Provide us an interpretation down to the referential level. So nice when you're looking to anchor things. So nice. Remember, visionary level, what is seen. Symbolic level, what is symbolized by what is seen. Referential level, what is picked out in history. 
In verse 20, we read this, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, or the Medo-Persian dynasty. One horn is bigger than the other, because Media was really subsumed under Persia. Persia, the larger horn. Media, the shorter horn. Makes sense that that represents those kings. As well as the detail that the ram went everywhere but eastward. Why is that? Because Persia was already in the east. That's why. And it's in that part of the known world, for the most part, Persia was already over there. Persia was already in the east, and so it was expanding this way. Yes, your direction. This way. So that makes sense. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. This is the goat with the singularly conspicuous horn. Represents Greece. And remember, it is the goat that conquers the ram. That defeats the ram. Who is this great horn? Who is this great horn? The first to sit on King Darius III's throne as the conquering king of Greece? It is none other than Alexander the Great. By all accounts, a reference to Alexander the Great. The Greek king who conquered Persia, Medo-Persia. To say that Alexander's conquests, despite having a very short reign, were remarkable is an understatement. Is an understatement. Tutored by Aristotle himself, he was a general by the time he was 21 in the army, and by the time he was 26, he had conquered a great deal of the known world. His kingdom would extend all the way from Greece to northwestern India. Greece, northwestern India. He was undefeated in battle. Undefeated. Never lost. And the rate of his expansion was truly breathtaking. Again, he had a short reign. Only reigned for 13 years. He conquered in every direction. Indicated, by the way, I'll just say, by our four-headed, four-winged leopard who in our vision from last chapter was also a reference to Persia, I suggested. So the, 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 the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman historical framework that I'm using, I would suggest get some pretty concrete verification and validation here in Daniel chapter 8. Alexander left an impact on world history and civilization uh, in the West especially, that remains today. That's how great this conqueror was. But no matter what, no matter how great you are, you can't stick around forever. And we remember in the vision that the horn is broken. The horn is broken. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation but not with his power. And as it turns out, history bears out those precise 
details. I watched a documentary of Alexander the Great just because I was so interested. And there it is. Alexander's kingdom, after he died, is divided into four regions. Macedonia and Greece, Asia Minor and Thrace, Syria Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy was over there in Egypt where they had crowned Alexander Pharaoh when he conquered. That's exactly what happens. Daniel speaks of these widely acknowledged historical realities with such clarity that liberal scholarship with the book of Daniel has sought to post-date Daniel. They said no one could possibly have known these things. No one could talk about this singular king of Greece who would defeat Persia and then his kingdoms would be split into four before it actually happened. To which I say, God can. God can. And that is exactly what he revealed in the vision. It's exactly what he reveals in the vision. And then Gabriel is going to zoom in on the little horn from Daniel's vision that emerges from one of these four sub-kingdoms after Alexander. And we want to ask two questions here. Number one, why zoom in on a little horn whose kingdom uh, was so pathetic compared to Alexander's? And then who is the historical referent of the little horn? So toward the end of this split rule, you might say, when the transgressions of those who have been opposing God's people reach their limit, similar, I would say, to how God says to Abraham that he's going to bring him back into the land when the iniquity of the Amorites has been completed. A bold speaking king is going to come out of one of the four sub-kingdoms, one of the four kingdoms. And it's going to be, he's going to be defined by something in particular. At the end, the latter end of their kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. In his own mind. Key, in his own mind he shall become great. The pages of history don't remember him as great. In his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Here we begin to see why the focus is on this little horn. Even though the little horn ends up being kind of a footnote in, in history of the kingdoms of men. Because more explicitly than anyone before him, before him and perhaps after him in one sense until a certain point, no one more explicitly persecuted God's people opposing those saints. No one more explicitly presumed the place of God than this little horn. No one turned themselves towards the glorious land in the same way. That's why it justifies this description, assaults God's people. He even suddenly massacres many, and yet even the power that he has is not his own, and he'll be broken. Both of the ultimate sources are the same. His power is not his own and he will be broken, but it will not be with a human or by a human hand. 
He will be destroyed by the prince of princes, a reference to God. In Daniel 11, we're going to see a parallel as God of gods, prince of princes. The glorious land and the location of the Jews in general tips us off and tips almost every reader of Daniel off historically that the little horn is on the downline of the the Syria-Mesopotamia region or the downline of Seleucus which is the general that was appointed over that region by, after Alexander's death. And it finds its historical reference in a name that we have also heard before. Antiochus Epiphanes, a real piece of scum that comes on the downline of Seleucus. He emerges from one of those four sub-kingdoms. He was, in fact, Antiochus IV, But he adopted the self-designation Antiochus Epiphanes, or fully Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God made manifest, God revealed. It certainly was not Yahweh he was talking about. He's talking about Zeus. The man claimed for himself to be God revealed to the world, to be God in the flesh. He was so brutal and so blasphemous and destructive towards the Jews that instead of Epiphanes, people made fun of him and called him Epimenes, which means the madman. How did he oppose God and his people in such a way to merit this kind of description, so much so that all of the Jews saw Antiochus Epiphanes as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 8's little horn? Well, for starters... He appoints his own own high priest there in Jerusalem, the highest bidder, a lackey named Menelaus, who passes him, at least according to Jewish, Jewish history, half of the temple treasure worth about 1,800 talents. You remember, talent was worth about 20 years labor for a common worker, so that's about 36,000 years of common labor wages. And that was only half. When the people sought to kind of reinstate his previously ousted rival, their own high priest, Antiochus understood it as a revolt and took swift action. Listen to this extended, gratuitous description of Antiochus's war on the saints and on the sanctuary specifically of God. Listen to this. Upon arriving in Jerusalem after this issue with the high priest, Antiochus executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants, 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days while others were taken captive. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple and sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of burnt offering. He defiled the temple precincts and he took the sacred furniture. A year later, after his conquest of Egypt was frustrated by Rome, as he passed back through Jerusalem, more than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day. He committed further atrocities and vandalism. He insisted on a paganization program that included the abolition of the temple cult and the observance of the Jewish law, and the substitution of pagan cults instead. 
the observance of all Jewish ordinances, in particular those relating to the Sabbath and circumcision, were prohibited on pain of death. In every town in Judea, sacrifice was to be offered to heathen gods. Overseers were sent everywhere to see that the royal command was carried out. Where people did not comply willingly, they were obliged to do so by force. Once a month, a check was made, and whoever was found with a scroll of the Torah or had a child circumcised was put to death. The temple was left without daily sacrifices. Religious practices were non-existent, and a statue of Zeus, the god to whom the temple was rededicated, was placed in the temple." Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. It is no surprise that the Jews understood this transgression that makes desolate to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes. Not under Babylonian, Persian, Greek, certainly not under Rome to come, had they ever experienced this particular kind of blasphemous cruelty and persecution. But as we learn in the vision, it doesn't last forever. The burnt offering is not taken away forever. The sanctuary is not trampled forever. How long, we read in verse 14? 2,300 mornings and evenings. Now, the period of time is not further clarified in the interpretation, which just as a hint probably means it's not as important as all this other stuff that is clarified in the interpretation. There are two main views, just very briefly. One is that it refers to the morning and evening sacrifices. So it's something like there would be two per day. Morning, evenings is morning, evening sacrifices. So that would be like 1,150 days if you divided that in half. Or it's the full 2,300 days, and that's just short of seven years. Both of them have their problems. I have no idea uh, which one is accurate. I, the, 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 the latter one sounds more compelling to me, but it's just hard to say. Here's the important thing, though. It's not exactly, certainly, definitely not exactly how long it is. But that this persecution by the little horn comes to a definite end determined by God. That's the important thing. It's going to be a long period, but it'll come to a definite end determined by God. And once more, this is exactly what happened. What happens to the little horn that is not broken by any human hand? In 164, Antiochus Epiphanes dies, but he doesn't die in battle. He was not slain by his bodyguard. He died from, on most accounts, was a strange and incredibly agonizing disease that just so happened to come upon him. And shortly after his death, when Rome is on the rise and these four kingdoms are on the way down, the latter end of their kingdoms, Shortly after his death, which the Jews cheered, by the way, the temple was cleansed, rededicated, and the burnt offerings for the sins of the people were reestablished. Which is why we have a fully functioning temple and sacrificial system when Jesus comes on the scene, 140 or so years later. Because temple sacrifices have been 
restored. The temple is there. What, what is the relationship then between the little horn of chapter 8 and the little horn of chapter 7? It would be a mistake to identify them with one another. But it would also be a mistake to say that they're totally unrelated. So we have to be very, very careful here with our details. Especially as we move forward, we're going to see this need for care. And thinking that a certain image or concept refers to the same thing across all visions. That would make things easier, but it's just not the case. And it is why the visionary, symbolic, referential level paradigm for apocalyptic interpretation especially is so critical. Because notice both of the little horns uh, um, can be characterized by opposition of God, persecution of the saints. Chapter 7, little horn opposes God, persecutes the saints. But it's talking about a final climactic God opposer by all accounts, by, at least by most accounts. This particular little horn is talking about something that is fulfilled in, in Antiochus Epiphanies. But nevertheless, they both are doing the same thing, but in different ways. The same image then might symbolize something, but have a, you might have a, an image that has kind of the same symbolic import, but two different historical reference. And I think that is exactly what we are seeing here. So what is the relationship between the two horns then? Because they're related. They're related. How are they related? I would say that as I suggested that Babylon serves as a type for kingdoms that oppose God and the final kingdom of man to be defeated in Revelation 18, and just as Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction serve as a type of wickedness and God's destruction on wickedness throughout the Scripture, even showing back up in the New Testament, Antiochus Epiphanes, who so boldly and blasphemously opposed God, prefigures others who will oppose God and His people, making war on the saints in various ways, and culminating in a final climactic anti-God, anti-Christ. That's why John can say, you've heard anti-Christ is coming, but they're already anti-Christ. The idea is, you have a type, you have iterations of it, and it is building up to a climactic fulfillment. The little horn of chapter 7 is the climactic fulfillment and fullness of the little horn of chapter 8, both of which are put down by God. Both of which are put down by God. Gabriel concludes by affirming the truth of the vision, but he tells Daniel to seal it up. He says, because it refers to many days from now. Obviously, this does not mean don't tell anyone, because Daniel wrote it down for distribution among his people. Seal it up as preservation language. Okay? Think of that day. Sealing it up would mean you're preserving something to keep it. Because the coming generations need to know that this is going to happen. This is coming. They will need to know so they are not caught off guard and their hope is not extinguished. Daniel is so overtaken by the vision, he, he can't even function. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, did not understand it. 
What an incredible illustration of what life before the veil looks like in light of knowing life behind it. You know what? He, he realizes this. He doesn't like this. He doesn't understand why it has to be this way. Not how he would have written it, okay? And what does he do? He ties his shoes and puts one foot in front of another and gets to work right where God has called him. There is no sensationalism. There is no quitting and isolating himself. And No, he continues about the king's business. He continues to serve excellently where God has called him, even in light of what he knows. What do we make of Daniel chapter 8? Nothing about application, the, the application, excuse me, of this passage is new. That's not. There's nothing new here. And that is not problematic because the themes that we see repeated most often are the themes that need to be applied most frequently. There's a reason there is repetition and certainly suffering. The guaranteed suffering of God's people is a predominant theme of the passage, the suffering brought on by the little horn. Just three sub-points, just reflection on suffering as we close, a subject about which so much could be said. I think it was John Piper who I heard first say, you want to prepare as a pastor your people to suffer before they do. It's difficult to understand suffering, have a theology of suffering be taught to you while you are suffering. But as we've seen in Daniel 8 here, in Daniel in the command for Daniel to seal it up, that was God's principle way before it was Dr. Piper's principle. That people should be prepared to suffer before they suffer. And it is easy to lose sight of this expectation in the 21st century and especially in the West, although culture is seem to be slowly shifting. But we are not persecuted in anything like what we just read in Daniel chapter 8, that's for sure. So sometimes there feels like a bit of a disconnect. But do not be surprised where the time comes for you and I. Do not be surprised. Oh no, I had no idea. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed for you and I to suffer. Smaller and greater ways, sure, I accept that. But it is guaranteed that we will suffer And so let's prepare our hearts and minds to suffer well before it happens because no one ever learned to swim while they thought they were drowning as someone called out instructions from the side. Put one hand in front of another. No, yeah, now then kind of pull it back under you and kick your foot. Someone who feels like they're drowning can't learn to swim. We've got to prepare to enter the deep end. Okay? Prepare to suffer before it happens, point one. Point two, suffering, keep perspective within it. There are quite a few ways to keep perspective. Let me just give you four words, four words to remember in terms of keeping perspective in suffering. The first is remember. Great is your faithfulness to me. I remember your works. I remember what you've done. I remember the promises. I don't just remember that you saved me. I remember your practical goodness shown to me in my life, in the land of the living. I remember your kindness. I remember your grace. I remember your rescue. I remember this redemption. 
I remember we are a forgetful people and in suffering, particularly where we're being opposed by forces of darkness and by kingdoms of men, we must remember this is an age-old theme. This is an age-old theme and God and His people win. Great is His faithfulness. Remember. Second thing is widen. Widen. When suffering comes, our perspectives shrink up. Things, the whole of life is about my angst, my sadness, my anxieties, my this and that, my worry. And what matters is alleviating these feelings of suffering brought on by one, for one reason or the other. And we must widen our perspective to see what the Lord is doing. We can't just live in our own little bubble of morbid introspection in suffering. We have to widen our perspective. What is God doing? Who is God? Who is around me? How do I get a larger perspective than just me and how crummy things are for me and my soul right now? How do I think more kingdom-mindedly, for example? That's the second word, widen. The third is serve, which is a great practical way to actually widen, to serve other people, to get outside myself and to be sacrificing myself for other people. I'm serving other people. I'm meeting needs. I am bringing joy. Again, I am doing something that is not me-focused. It's other people-focused. And the fourth is give thanks. It's actually five words, I guess, isn't it? It's okay. Thankfulness, we'll say. Preserve the four. People who can give thanks amidst suffering are joyful people even when they're not happy people. People who can give thanks in the midst of suffering, can be joyful people even when they aren't happy people. Even when it isn't roses, even when it isn't fun, even when it hurts, what can you be thankful for? It is so easy, all of us know this to be true, in our finiteness, and our sin, to, to think about things to complain about and criticize. and It's effortless. We don't have to try at all to do that. We don't have to try. All of us are experts at it. All of us are experts at identifying frustrations, disappointments, pains, hurts. Those effortlessly command our thought life. What takes a lot of effort is thankfulness in those same moments. How can you embrace gratitude to keep perspective within suffering? When opposition comes. And then finally, suffering, remember the hope beyond it. I've saved this little detail for last. I'm hoping no one caught on until right now. You do realize that in the visions of Daniel, he's in Babylon. There is no temple and the people aren't in the land. But, but in his vision, there is a temple. And the people are in the land. Could it be that there was an odd sense of hope that despite the weight of Daniel's vision, that God nevertheless revealed that, hey, 
I, under, I understand there, there's no temple and, and you're not in the land right now, but I'm going to give you a vision of the future and there will be. Even for Daniel, there was hope that the temple would be rebuilt. And of course, we see that happen in the Persian period when the people get to come back to the land. We read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. Remembering the hope beyond suffering is perhaps the ultimate perspective, isn't it? Christ has come, and despite being opposed and suffering and dying, He rises from the dead, and therefore none of us can ever truly be conquered if we're united with Christ because we are more than conquerors. Christ has already conquered. And so as it's been said before, we're fighting, but in one sense we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. We will not taste the the, the second death. The Lamb who has conquered will vanquish the ancient foe and the kingdom will come and it whispers to us from the future, even now. Endure suffering. Cling to hope. Trust in Christ. Keep the faith. Let's pray. God, would you help us to be a people who remember your promises and your goodness Help us have eyes to see a larger plan, larger patterns of your faithfulness to us, to your people over the years. Lord, we pray that we would not be caught off guard by the kingdoms of men opposing the kingdom of God, by persecution for the sake of Christ. And God, we pray that we would guard our own hearts, that we would keep our souls well, that we would walk in the light, that we would repent of sin, that we would walk worthy of the kingdom. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.